Well, hello and welcome to the Mariner's Library with me, Chris Stamore Major. And in this episode, we're continuing the book The Wind Calls the Tune by Stanley Smith and Charles Violet. This is the ninth part of the reading and we're on chapter 10. Now, if you haven't already, please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner. And there for $5 a month, you can not only support the podcast, but also get access to exclusive Patreon only book readings. Now on with the story. Chapter 10. Shadows and Reflections. Here in mid-Atlantic, the ocean lay smooth and slick around us, as placid and silent on the surface as the outer space between the stars. Possibly it was like this for a thousand miles in all directions and was to remain so almost undisturbedly for many days. Under a shining blue cloudless sky during the day, at night, under an unobscured, glittering sweep from east to west, across the black vault above. Below us lay a mysterious world. Two men only have penetrated below 500 feet. William Beebe and Otis Barton, in their bathosphere, descended to 3,000 feet and Barton alone reached 4,500 feet. The most extreme depth to which light rays can travel is 2,000 feet, and for the last 1,000 feet there is only a vague illumination of deepest violet. Below this layer, blackness prevails, only relieved by sparks of phosphorescent light from fish almost unknown to man. The depths beneath us, something between three and four miles, were no more lethal than a meagre ten feet in certain circumstances, but it was an uncanny thought that somewhere down below our keel, monstrous creatures roamed the deep. Our close proximity to the surface, only nine inches at the cockpit, made us aware on dark silent evenings that we were quite vulnerable to the searching arms of a squid, some of which are said to spread their writhing loathsomeness to fifty feet or more. During the previous voyage in 1949, on one memorable night such as we experience now, the helmsman felt a chill running up his spine, and the hair on the back of his neck stood stiff as, a few yards away from the boat, a heavy creature broke surface, making a great puttering commotion in the silence of the calm night. The word puttering describes the noise he heard, which suggested to him an impression of long, sinuous arms studded with the small suckers peculiar to these nightmarish animals. It required all his resources of willpower to sit out the remaining hours of his watch, and he took out a knife and placed it in a handy position. We seldom thought too much about the many disappearances of ships much larger than ours without trace. That sort of thing only happened to others. We nearly always felt safe enough, yet there were occasions when our minds dwelt on strange occurrences at sea. What did happen on board the Mary Celeste? What happened aboard the brig Resolvin in 1884 near the Grand Banks? The sidelights and the galley fire still burning, her crew gone without trace. We sometimes laughed a little nervously when we spoke about these things. We never did so at night in calms. But sailing men do not laugh too heartily at such misadventures, nor at the fantastic theories engendered by these queer accounts, for no seaman is quite sure of the sea. Perhaps you are satisfied with some rationally acceptable explanation about the Mary Celeste, 
but possibly you have not heard the account given by the sailing vessel Ellen Austin's officers. They found a derelict schooner in 1881. Everything was in perfect order, but there was no sign of life. A party was put aboard the schooner and they sailed in company for a few days. The two vessels were parted during a moderate blow and when the Ellen Austin saw her again, everything was once more in order, but the party had gone. The crew of the Ellen Austin displayed an understandable reluctance to go aboard the little ship again. However, after promises of a big share in the prize money, a few of her crew volunteered to take her to the nearest port. The little ship was never heard of again. Alone on the ocean, just the two of us and the little boat, we grew to know the meaning of that lovely Breton prayer. O God, thy sea is so great, and my boat is so small. We have to admit that throughout the voyage we never at any time felt quite free of anxiety. At all times, both day and night, we would cast quick glances around the horizon and sky to see what new trouble might be brewing for us. We expected worse than we ever got, but we thought always with growing apprehension of the inexorable passage of time, and as the days passed, it became more and more clear that we would arrive in the path of the hurricanes when they were at full spate. There were several other less fearsome but by no means happy contingencies to think about. The possibility of illness crossed our minds. Should this happen, we planned to make for the nearest shipping lane, trusting to meet a ship. Ever present was the thought of falling overboard while the other man was asleep below. Colin Smith did actually get knocked overboard during the first crossing. It was fortunate that Stanley happened to be awake at the time. There were big seas running and it took Stanley almost 10 minutes to get back to him. Much of the time Colin could not be seen for intervening seas and it was clear that to lose sight of a bobbing head in such conditions might easily prove fatal. To lessen the danger on this voyage, we had a lifeline attached to the mast. This was led back along the cabin roof and was fitted with a large snap hook to fasten to our midsections whenever we got out on deck. We promised each other to attend to this detail every time without fail, unless the man below was awake. This was done at the very outset of the journey, but we fear there were many times when it was forgotten, when sail had to be brought down smartly, for instance. The thought of being lost overboard, if one dares to think about it, is unbearably horrible. To watch the boat getting further away, to see her disappear, imagine the comfortable cabin into which, but a short time ago, you were expecting to dive. The light and warmth, jokes with your shipmate, a pipe, food, the future which had looked so hopeful, the past, and now the cold gradually boring into the body, the ghastly thought of sharks, the black miles of mystery straight down. The miraculous rescue of the American yachtsman Ted Sirks in the 1951 Honolulu race, hundreds of miles from land, after he fell overboard, will always be told among seamen as one of the most incredible sea escapes. His persistent battle with the shark makes us wonder if, under similar seemingly hopeless circumstances, we would have had the spirit and courage to fight for so long. One of the motives for our rule about the lifeline was to allow at least that measure of peace of mind to the man below. We knew we were in for a long period of great strain, and any chance we saw of alleviating it was grasped.
for the numerous small worries of the trip would we knew tend to lower our condition and heighten our tempers as time passed. There were other anxieties, some real, others less so, which detracted from our appreciation of the splendours of the scenes in the ski and sky which passed before our eyes. Nevertheless, we were not by any means blind to some of these. The sight of the great waves, sometimes thirty feet high, left an unforgettable impression on our minds. Our first fears that they might be too much for the boat were dispelled by Nova Espero's admirable behaviour amongst their tumbling crests. Under a brilliant sun, sailing across a clear blue sky, they appeared at their best. It was immensely thrilling to watch the summit of a great mobile hill of water overbalance. From below, we looked up. The wave lifts from its deep, intense blue base, grading upwards from turquoise into breathtaking lapis lazuli near its crest. There is a moment's pause, then, with a roar, it bursts into a scintillating explosion of white, frothy water. The boat rises in response, at first smoothly, then smashes into the glittering, foaming top, spray flying in fabulous showers, leaving a fine white mist shot with the colours of a rainbow. As she bounds over the summit and the smooth, white-laced curve of its back, she begins to swoop into the descent before recovering to face the next advancing white-crested slope. For hour after hour we watched this magnificent, clean and effervescent spectacle. This was life with a capital L. We watched every succeeding sunset and sunrise, sometimes with pleasure, sometimes with foreboding. They told us a great deal about the weather we could expect. It was with great relief and appreciation that we watched the sun sink down ahead of us into an ever-deepening soft red. How reassured we felt if a few slow-moving summer clouds lost way and hung about glowing warmly. This usually meant a pleasant light breeze through the night. We welcomed a moon always, but especially did we enjoy its magical silver glitter across a gentle sea. The moon out at sea, reflecting an inviting path out to the horizon, is one of the world's most beautiful sights. There is no colour, every object is a soft black, the sail curves upwards doing its silent work of pushing us on towards our destination, the sea beneath us is a dark, intangible nothingness, not too ominous, for a few feet away from us a silver flicker reflects the moon from countless short-lived little facets on the silent wavelets. The white deck of the boat glistens softly below the level of our eyes as we gaze languidly around for the rarely seen steaming lights of a ship. We saw a great liner once. It may have been the Italian ship Rex. She looked incredibly lovely with all her ports gleaming warm yellow lights. We thought of her passengers all comfortably strolling from lounge to dining saloon to promenade deck, looking casually out at the sea, admiring for a moment, then turning away with a sigh to go below to their warm bunks and worry for the rest of the night about the future, which will begin for them in two or three days, or about the past, which ended a few days before. We have a month at best before we need embroil ourselves once again in the petty maelstrom of man's social machine. 
We now come to an entry in Stanley's log of the 11th of July. It reads, We both feel we are honoured with the kindliness and fatherly interest of Joshua Slocum. We draw no conclusion from this. We just feel it is so and are grateful. We do our best to act like true seamen and be efficient because there is a very definite desire to please the old man and to merit his interest and sympathy. This is a strange entry to find in a ship's log. The reader, if he likes, may dismiss it as a delusion born of physical and mental strain. Nevertheless, we write of it because it is part of the experiences which, to us, were as real as the sky and the sea. A similar experience occurred during Colin and Stanley Smith's first voyage in the Nova Aspero. Sometimes, when the man below was asleep, the helmsman alone on deck would turn round to make a remark to someone he felt was near. Immediately realising that this was a bit unnecessary, since the nearest conscious human was probably hundreds of miles beyond hearing. During the second voyage, it happened many times, both to Stanley and to Charles, and gave a feeling of companionship, rather like having a close friend at hand. We both sensed it independently, at the change of the watch after sundown on the day of the strange entry in the log. One said to the other, You know, I've had a strange feeling that that old Slocum is with us, interrupted the other. Yes. We both admittedly have a great love and respect for the memory of the father of all ocean voyages in small boats, but whether our experience was delusion, imagination, or just pure fancy, it had a notable and practical effect on our behaviour. If indeed Captain Slocum was with us, his old eyes must have twinkled as he watched us during the following days, belatedly squaring up the ship because of him. We stirred ourselves out of our lazy habits, looking round to find evidence of lubberly neglect, and we whipped every bushy tail-end of halyard, sheet and lanyard. We washed down the decks as if they did not get washed enough. We cleaned out the bilges. Charles made efforts to be absolutely accurate with his navigation, and Stanley, casting critical eyes around the little boat, took out a long-standing twist in the foresail halyard, replaced one or two lanyards at the shrouds, and took up slack in the broom lacing. We stopped swearing at things. We say with some pride that we did not really curse a lot at any time, although our feelings did sometimes prevail. There have been instances in the past of men experiencing this extra companion feeling. We think immediately of Shackleton and his friends who relate the intangible presence of an unseen member of the party. They kept counting their number in their heads and were mildly astonished each time to find that they were one too many in their minds. Frank Smythe, during an Everest expedition, when he went up beyond the remainder of his party on to further exhausting heights, also had a strange experience. He sat down to rest for a few minutes, took out a piece of chocolate, broke it into two parts and turned in the act of handing it to someone whom he was clearly conscious was beside him. We only heard of this when we spoke to friends long after the voyage, so we did not think we were allowing our imagination to run away with us by a form of auto-suggestion. There were certainly similarities between the two cases we have heard about and our own. Shackleton and his party and Smythe were remote from other people and far from places frequented by men. We, too, were far from civilization, for nearly a thousand miles separated us even from the nearest shipping lanes. 
We've spent a total of 12 hours in every 24, except in a few fine weather spells and during exceptionally vile weather, sitting in the cockpit, just holding the tiller and watching the compass, or gazing round the empty horizon. We knew that land was many weary miles beyond the field of vision, but somewhere there might be a stray vessel ploughing along a different route from the normal, nearer to us than the others, but if there was, we did not see her. Yet, owing to our feeling of companionship, the full realisation of this remoteness did not strike us so vividly then as it does now. Before the remarkable entry in the log for the 11th of July, we had quite recently had a wonderful spell ashore, but for the preceding week we had not been particularly happy in our minds. We were oppressed by the fear of getting caught in a hurricane towards the end of this lap, and often wondered if the beauty of the Azores and the pleasantness of our stay there was to be the last we should ever know of land. We had been a week at sea, and the many discomforts and privations contrasted starkly with our recent comfortable rest at Brian's lovely home. This emphasised the strain and would pass, but it can be understood that we were under considerable stress. We each noticed a slight change in the other's attitude to things on this day. We saw a slight lessening of the irritation with little misfortunes, which to us were not so small. The overturning of a precious cup of tea on a pillow, for instance, or finding a packet of our now dwindling stock of cigarettes green with mould. We saw a somewhat less beady look in each other's eyes, and we knew instinctively that we need not be so careful to avoid giving offence and that we could act more freely. The severe test of our friendship came during the next few weeks. We had to exercise all our understanding of each other, our patience and consideration, for soon, following this spell of easy weather, we were to experience the most exasperating conditions of all, lasting until we made our first port. Squalls, variable winds, a succession of gales and grey skies to deepen our ever-growing phases of despondency. Everything that came seemed to frustrate us. Tiny accidents, the occasional bruising we got when thrown off balance by an extra heavy sea, an extra gallon or two of spray down our backs when in the cockpit, a broken fingernail when reefing, water in the lamp, the stubbing of a bare toe, we seldom wore shoes. The way we reacted to these little annoyances showed clearly that our nerves were very highly strung. There was a strong tendency to get annoyed with some little act or remark of the other man. We became terribly tired, for although off-watch for a total of twelve hours in every twenty-four, much of our off-watch time was spent in doing daily chores, cooking, cleaning and converting seawater. It was unavoidable too that the process of taking sights often involved both of us. Charles was so filled with the importance of absolute accuracy that, rather than rely upon Stanley's somewhat casual methods, he got up halfway through his midday sleep to take the almost daily meridian altitude. At night, the torture of being aroused several times, it will be remembered we kept two hourly watches at night, was another test of endurance. Although still comparatively fit, there was no denying we were gradually losing our health, and each time we awoke, we found the loathsome taste of weariness in our mouths. There was the detestable coating of ill health on our tongues, and our throats were dry and hoarse. The caller found himself waiting a little longer each time for the other man to take his place at the helm. The waiting is sheer misery, and we saved the peace 
only because we knew how vital it was. In order to enable us to stand this period which we foresaw at the beginning of the trip, we had gone into the matter thoroughly. We knew that we were both determined to go the whole way together. From this it followed that each would do his level best throughout the journey. Therefore we realised that if either of us made a mistake in any job or failed to complete it, it was the result of physical, not spiritual, limitations. From this assumption, which was never undermined, we concluded that there should never be any occasion to reproach each other. An important contribution to peace within the little ship was to try to cut out anything in ourselves which might provoke annoyance. It was unlikely that any major difference of opinion would occur, and it was therefore important to guard against these small causes of friction. We systematically examined ourselves for little mannerisms and habits which might prove unbearably irritating to our neighbour under strain. These are astonishingly difficult to eradicate, but in great measure we succeeded. Among other things, Stanley had an unconscious habit of prefacing almost every sentence with, you see, Charles, in certain moods, put on a child-at-play act. These little habits were entirely subconscious and had become ingrained in us, but we spoke to each other frankly and, although the mannerisms persisted for some time, they were eventually eliminated. Whenever we discussed the little boat, we did so with a strange mixture of the practical and the sentimental, in which perhaps the latter predominated. She became almost a person when she rose magnificently from trough to crest of awkward sea, she did not do so because her buoyancy was sufficient to avoid the danger of being overwhelmed. She did so because she had the spirit in her to live despite the seas. When she sailed on course without attention for several days on end, she did so because she thought we needed rest, not because she had the long keel and the right shape and rig to do so. She became a personality to us, and as such we treated her with a similar respect. Even during the severest buffetings we received, we never swore at the boat or her antics. As we have said before, it was the sea, the wind and sky on which we directed our invective. We had experienced in the past many pleasant and unpleasant times together, and we think this gave us valuable chances for reminiscence. When we were not reading to each other, we would talk of places we had seen, people we knew. We think this is very important, and takes a place second only to common interests, such as music, literature, ideologies, love of the sea and sailing. Above all, however, we both have a great affection for Dartmouth and Devon, and we often recalled the beauties of our favourite harbour and dreamt of the old town in the sloping valley under the high, sheltering hills. These things, we think, may give you an idea of what is important between shipmates on long voyages in small vessels. There are, of course, many differing opinions on the subject. Macpherson and Bill Lang made their wonderful voyages together in Driac as owner and hand, although they soon became great friends and forgot the more worldly differences between them. W.A. Robinson, who sailed his little Svap round the world, had a terror of Tahiti as his shipmate. It is difficult to see how they found much in common apart from the business of making the voyage, but they headed off all right. We sailed as equals and strongly resented the insistent demands for the name of the master when we had to conform to the formalities in a new port. We know it is very unusual for a ship to sail with such a division of authority, 
but in the circumstances we found it best that way. The man on watch was the man in charge. If a major decision had to be made, the problem was discussed and agreement was always the result. Well, that's the end of today's reading. I hope you enjoyed it. If you haven't already, please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash the mariner, where for $5 a month, you can help support this podcast. If you do want to engage with more of the content there, there's uh, unique videos, more podcasts, blogs, lots of different things, and a growing community of people who are interested in all things sailing. That's patreon.com forward slash the mariner. Well, that's all from the Mariner's Library today, and I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers. Cheers.